Good evening. Welcome to the Just Sleep Podcast. I'm Tasha, your host. Every week, I will read you an old story to help you relax, put the stressful day behind you, and drift off to sleep. Occasionally, we will run ads in order to cover the costs of the production of the podcast. Rest assured, there will be no ads during or after the story. If you prefer an ad-free and intro-free show, you can join Just Sleep Premium. Visit justsleeppodcast.com slash support for more information. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks sleep number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Tonight. I will be reading Charlotte Bronte's final novel, Villette. So lie down, close your eyes, and let me read you a story. Chapter One Breton My godmother lived in a handsome house in the clean and ancient town of Breton. Her husband's family had been residents there for generations and bore indeed the name of their birthplace, Breton, 
of Breton, whether by coincidence or because some remote ancestor had been a personage of sufficient importance to leave his name to his neighborhood, I know not. When I was a girl, I went to Breton about twice a year, and well, I liked the visit. The house and its inmates specially suited me. The large, peaceful rooms, the well-arranged furniture, the clear, wide windows, the balcony outside, looking down on a fine antique street, where Sundays and holidays seemed always to abide. So quiet was this atmosphere, so clean its pavement. These things pleased me well. One child in a household of grown people is usually made very much of, and in a quiet way I was a good deal taken notice of by Mrs. Breton, who had been left a widow with one son before I knew her. Her husband, a physician, having died while she was yet a young and handsome woman. She was not young, as I remember her, but she was still handsome, tall, well-made, wearing always the clearness of health in her brunette cheek and its vivacity in a pair of fine, cheerful black eyes. People esteemed it a grievous pity that she had not conferred her complexion on her son, whose eyes were blue, though, even in boyhood, very piercing, and the colour of his long hair, such as friends did not venture to specify, except as the sun shone on it, when they called it golden. He inherited the lines of his mother's features, however, also her good teeth, her stature, or the promise of her stature, for he was not yet full-grown, and, what was better, her health without flaw, and her spirits of that tone and equality which are better than a fortune to the possessor. In the autumn, I was staying at Breton, my godmother having come in person to claim me of the king's folk, with whom was at that time fixed my permanent residence. I believe she then plainly saw events coming, whose very shadow I scarce guessed, yet of which the faint suspicion sufficed to impart unsettled sadness and made me glad to change scene and society. Time almost flowed smoothly for me at my godmother's side, not with tumultuous swiftness, but blandly, like the gliding of a full river through a plain. My visits to her resembled the sojourn of Christian and hopeful beside a certain pleasant stream, with green trees on each bank and meadows beautified with lilies all the year round. The charm of variety there was not, nor the excitement of incident, but I liked peace so well and sought stimulus so little that when the latter came, I almost felt it a disturbance and wished rather it had still held aloof. One day, a letter was received which the contents evidently caused Mrs. Breton's surprise and some concern. I thought at first it was from home and trembled, expecting I know not what disastrous communication to me. However, no reference was made, and the cloud seemed to pass. The next day, on my return from a long walk, I found, as I entered my bedroom, an unexpected change. In addition to my own French bed in its shady recess, appeared in a corner a small crib, draped with white, and, in addition to my mahogany chest of drawers, I saw a tiny rosewood chest. I stood still, gazed, and considered. 
Of what are these things, the signs and tokens? I asked. The answer was obvious. A second guest is coming. Mrs. Breton expects other visitors. On descending to dinner, explanations ensued. A little girl, I was told, would shortly be my companion, the daughter of a friend and distant relation of the late Dr. Breton's. This little girl, it was added, had recently lost her mother, though indeed, Mrs. Breton, ere long subjoined, the loss was not so great as might at first appear. Mrs. Holm, Holm it seems was the name, had been a very pretty but a giddy, careless woman who had neglected her child and disappointed and disheartened her husband. So far from congenial had the union proved that separation at last ensued, separation by mutual consent, not after any legal process. Soon after this event, the lady, having overexerted herself at a ball, caught cold, took a fever, and died after a very brief illness. Her husband, naturally a man of very sensitive feelings, and shocked inexpressibly by too sudden communication of the news, could hardly, it seems, now be persuaded but that some over-severity on his part, some deficiency in patience and indulgence, had contributed to her hasten her end. He had brooded over this idea till his spirits were seriously affected. The medical men insisted on travelling, being tried as a remedy, and meanwhile Mrs. Breton had offered to take charge of his little girl. And I hope, added my godmother in conclusion, the child will not be like her mamma, as silly and frivolous a little flirt as ever sensible man was weak enough to marry. For, said she, Mr. Holm is a sensible man in his way, though not very practical. He's fond of science and lives half his life in a laboratory trying experiments, a thing his butterfly wife could neither comprehend nor endure. And indeed, confessed my godmother, I should not have liked it myself. In answer to a question of mine, she further informed me that her late husband used to say, Mr. Holm had derived this scientific turn from a maternal uncle, a French savant, for he came, it seems, of mixed French and Scottish origin, and had connections now living in France, of whom more than one wrote D.E. before his name, and called himself noble. That same evening at nine o'clock, a servant was dispatched to meet the coach by which our little visitor was expected. Mrs. Breton and I sat alone in the drawing room waiting her coming, John Graham Breton being absent on a visit to one of his schoolfellows who lived in the country. My godmother read the evening paper while she waited. I sewed. It was a wet night, the rain lashed the panes, and the wind sounded angry and restless. Poor child, said Mrs. Breton from time to time. What weather for her journey. I wish she were safe here. A little before ten, the doorbell announced Warren's return. No sooner was the door opened than I ran down into the hall. There lay a trunk and some bandboxes. Beside them stood a person like a nurse girl. And at the foot of the staircase was Warren with a shawled bundle in his arms. Is that the child? I asked. Yes, miss. I would have opened the shawl and tried to get a peep at the face 
but it was hastily turned from me to Warren's shoulder. Put me down, please, said a small voice, when Warren opened the drawing room door. And take off this shawl, continued the speaker, extracting with its minute hand the pin, and with a sort of fastidious haste, doffing the clumsy wrapping. Creature which now appeared made a deft attempt to fold the shawl, but the drapery was much too heavy and large to be sustained or wielded by those hands and arms. Give it to Harriet, please, was then the direction, and she can put it away. This said, it turned, and fixed its eyes on Mrs. Breton. Come here, little dear, said that lady. Come and let me see if you are cold and damp. Come and let me warm you at the fire. The child advanced promptly. Relieved of her wrapping, she appeared exceedingly tiny, but was a neat, completely fashioned little figure, light, slight, and straight. Seated on my godmother's ample lap, she looked a mere doll, her neck delicate as wax, her head of silky curls, increased, I thought, the resemblance. Mrs. Breton talked in little fond phrases as she chafed the child's hands, arms and feet. First she was considered with a wistful gaze, but soon a smile answered her. Mrs. Breton was not generally a caressing woman, even with her deeply cherished son. Her manner was rarely sentimental, often the reverse. But when the small stranger smiled at her, she kissed it, asking, What is my little one's name? Missy. But besides Missy? Polly, Papa calls her. Will Polly be content to live with me? Not always, but till Papa comes home. Papa has gone away. She shook her head expressively. He will return to Polly, or send for her. Will he, ma'am? Do you know he will? I think so. But Harriet thinks not, at least not for a long while, he is ill. Her eyes filled. She drew her hand from Mrs. Breton's and made a movement to leave her lap. It was at first resisted, but she said, Please, I wish to go. I can sit on a stool. She was allowed to slip down from the knee, and taking a footstool, she carried it to a corner where the shade was deep and there seated herself. Mrs. Breton, though a commanding and in grave matters, even a peremptory woman, was often passive in trifles. She allowed the child her way. She said to me, take no notice at present. But I did take notice. I watched Polly rest her small elbow on her small knee, her head on her hand. I observed her draw a square inch or two of pocket handkerchief from the doll pocket of her doll skirt, and then I heard her weep. Other children in grief or pain cry aloud, without shame or restraint. But this being wept, the tiniest occasional sniff testified to her emotion. Mrs. Breton did not hear it, which was quite as well. Ere long, a voice, issuing from the corner, demanded, May the bell be rung for Harriet? I rang. The nurse was summoned and came. Harriet, I must be put to bed, said her little mistress. You must ask where my bed is. Harriet signified that she had already made that inquiry. Ask if you sleep with me, Harriet. No, Missy, said the nurse. You are to share with this young lady's room. 
designating me. Missy did not leave her seat, but I saw her eyes seek me. After some minutes' silent scrutiny, she emerged from her corner. I wish you, ma'am, good night, said she to Mrs. Breton. But she passed me mute. Good night, Polly, I said. No need to say good night, since we sleep in the same chamber, was the reply, with which she vanished from the drawing room. We heard Harriet propose to carry her upstairs. No need, was again her answer. No need, no need. And her small step toiled wearily up the staircase. On going to bed an hour afterwards, I found her still wide awake. She had arranged her pillows so as to support her little person in a sitting posture. Her hands, placed one within the other, rested quietly on the sheet, with an old-fashioned calm most unchildlike. I abstained from speaking to her for some time, but just before extinguishing the light, I recommended her to lie down. By and by was the answer. But you will take cold, Missy. She took some tiny article of raiment from the chair at her crib side, and with it covered her shoulders. I suffered her to do as she pleased. Listening a while in the darkness, I was aware that she still wept, wept under restraint, quietly and cautiously. On awaking with daylight, a trickling of water caught my ear. Behold, there she was risen and mounted on a stool near the washstand, with pains and difficulty inclining the ewer, which she could not lift, so as to pour its contents into the basin. It was curious to watch her as she washed and dressed, so small, busy, and noiseless. Evidently, she was a little accustomed to perform her own toilet, and the buttons, strings, hooks and eyes offered difficulties which she encountered with a perseverance good to witness. She folded her nightdress, she smoothed the drapery of her couch quite neatly, withdrawing into a corner where the sweep of the white curtain concealed her, she became still. I half rose and advanced my head to see how she was occupied. On her knees, with her forehead bent on her hands, I perceived that she was praying. Her nurse tapped at the door. She started up. I'm dressed, Harriet, said she. I've dressed myself, but I do not feel neat. Make me neat. Why did you dress yourself, Missy? Hush, speak low, Harriet, for fear of waking the girl, meaning me who now lay with my eyes shut. I dress myself to learn against the time you leave me. Do you want me to go? When you're cross, I have many a time wanted you to go, but not now. Tie my sash straight. Make my hair smooth, please. Your sash is straight enough. What a particular little body you are. It must be tied again. Please do tie it. There, then. When I am gone, you must get that young lady to dress you. On no account. Why, she's a very nice young lady. I hope you mean to behave prettily to her, Missy, and not show your ears. She shall dress me on no account. Comical little thing. You're not passing the comb straight through my hair, Harriet. The line will be crooked. Aye, you are ill to please. Does that suit? Pretty well. Where should I go now that I am dressed? I will take you into the breakfast room. Come then. They proceeded to the door. She stopped. Oh, Harriet, I wish this was Papa's house. 
I don't know these people. Be a good child, Missy. I am good, but I ache here, putting her hand to her heart and moaning while she reiterated, Papa, Papa. I roused myself and started up to check the scene while it was yet within bounds. Say good morning to the young lady, dictated Harriet. She said good morning and then followed her nurse from the room. Harriet temporarily left that same day to go to her own friends who lived in the neighborhood. On descending, I found Paulina, the child called herself Polly, but her full name was Paulina Mary, seated at the breakfast table by Mrs. Breton's side. A mug of milk stood before her, a morsel of bread filled her hand, which lay passive on the tablecloth. She was not eating. How we shall conciliate this little creature, said Mrs. Breton to me. I don't know. She tastes nothing, and by her looks she has not slept. I expressed my confidence in the effects of time and kindness. If she were to take fancy to anybody in the house, she would soon settle, but not till then, replied Mrs. Breton. Chapter 2 Paulina Some days elapsed, and it appeared she was not likely to take much of a fancy to anybody in the house. She was not exactly naughty or willful. She was far from disobedient, but an object less conducive to comfort, to tranquility even, than she presented. It was scarcely possible to have before one's eyes. She moped. No grown person could have performed that uncharing business better. No furrowed face of adult exile, longing for Europe and Europe's antipodes, ever bore more legibly the signs of homesickness than did her infant visage. She seemed growing old and unearthly. I, Lucy Snow, plead guiltless of that curse, an overheated and discursive imagination. But whenever, opening a room door, I found her seated in a corner alone, her head in her tiny hand, that room seemed to me not inhabited, but haunted. And again, when of moonlight nights, on waking, I beheld her figure, white and conspicuous in its night dress, kneeling upright in bed, and praying like some Catholic or Methodist enthusiast, some precocious fanatic or untimely saint. I scarcely know what thoughts I had, but they ran risk of being hardly more rational and healthy than that child's mind must have been. I seldom caught a word of her prayers, for they were whispered low. Sometimes, indeed, they were not whispered at all, but put up unuttered. Such rare sentences as reached my ear still bore the burden. Papa, my dear papa. This, I perceived, was a one-eyed nature, betraying that monomaniac tendency I have ever thought the most unfortunate with which man or woman can be cursed. What might have been the end of this fretting, had it continued unchecked, can only be conjectured. It received, however, a sudden turn. One afternoon, Mrs. Breton, coaxing her from her usual station in a corner, had lifted her into the window seat, and by way of occupying her attention, told her to watch the passengers and count how many ladies should go down the street in a given time. She had sat listlessly, hardly looking, and not counting, when, my eye being fixed on hers, I witnessed in its iris and pupil 
a startling transfiguration. These sudden dangerous natures, sensitive as they are called, offer many a curious spectacle to those whom a cooler temperament has secured from participation in their angular vagaries. The fixed and heavy gaze swum, trembled, then glittered in fire. The small, overcast brow cleared, the trivial and dejected features lit up, the sad countenance vanished, and in its place appeared a sudden eagerness, an intense expectancy. It is, were her words. Like a bird or a shaft or any other swift thing, she was gone from the room. How she got the house door open, I cannot tell. Probably it might be ajar. Perhaps Warren was in the way and obeyed her behest, which would be impetuous enough. I, watching calmly from the window, saw her in her black frock and tiny braided apron. To pinafores she had an antipathy. Dart half the length of the street. And, as I was on the point of turning, and quietly announcing to Mrs. Breton that the child was run out mad and ought instantly to be pursued, I saw her caught up and wrapped at once from my cool observation and from the wondering stare of the passengers. A gentleman had done this good turn, and now, covering her with his cloak, advanced to restore her to the house whence he had seen her issue. I concluded he would leave her in a servant's charge and withdraw, but he entered, Having tarried a little while below, he came upstairs. His reception immediately explained that he was known to Mrs. Breton. She recognized him, she greeted him, and yet she was fluttered, surprised, taken unawares. Her look and manner were even expostulatory, and in reply to these, rather than her words, he said, I could not help it, madam. I found it impossible to leave the country without seeing with my own eyes how she settled. But you will unsettle her. I hope not. And how is papa's little Polly? This question he addressed to Paulina as he sat down and placed her gently on the ground before him. How is Polly's papa? was the reply as she leaned on his knee and gazed up into his face. It was not a noisy, not a wordy scene, for that I was thankful, but it was a scene of feeling too brimful, and which, because the cup did not foam up high or furiously overflow, only oppressed one the more. On all occasions of vehement, unrestrained expansion, a sense of disdain or ridicule comes to the weary spectator's relief, whereas I have ever felt most burdensome that sort of sensibility which bends of its own will, a giant servant under the sway of good sense. Mr. Holm was a stern, featured, perhaps I should rather say a hard-featured man. His forehead was knotty and his cheekbones were marked and prominent. The character of his face was quite scotch, but there was feeling in his eye and emotion in his now agitated countenance. His northern accent and speaking harmonized with his physiognomy he was at once proud-looking and homely-looking. He laid his hand on his child's uplifted head. She said, Kiss Polly. He kissed her. I wished she would utter some hysterical cry so that I might get relief and be at ease. She made wonderfully little noise 
She seemed to have got what she wanted, all she wanted, and to be in a trance of content. Neither in mien nor in features was this creature like her sire, and yet she was of his strain. Her mind had been filled from his, as the cup from the flagon. Indisputably, Mr. Holm owned manly self-control. However, he might secretly feel on some matters. Polly, he said, looking down on his little girl, go into the hall. You will see Papa's great coat lying on a chair. Put your hand into the pockets. You will find a pocket handkerchief there. Bring it to me. She obeyed, went and returned deftly and nimbly. He was talking to Mrs. Breton when she came back, and she waited with the handkerchief in her hand. It was a picture in its way to see her, with her tiny stature and trim, neat shape, standing at his knee. Seeing that he continued to talk, apparently unconscious of a return, she took his hand, opening the unresisting fingers, insinuated into them the handkerchief, and closed them upon it one by one. He still seemed not to see or to feel her, but by and by he lifted her to his knee. She nestled against him, and though neither looked at nor spoke to the other for an hour following, I suppose both were satisfied. During tea, the minute things, movements and behaviour gave, as usual, full occupation to the eye. First, she directed Warren, as he placed the chairs. Put Papa's chair here, and mine near it, between Papa and Mrs. Breton. I must hand his tea. She took her own seat, and beckoned with her hand to her father. Be near me, as if we were at home, Papa. And again, as she intercepted his cup in passing, and would stir the sugar, and put the cream in herself. I always did it for you at home, Papa. Nobody could do it as well, not even your own self. Throughout the meal she continued her attentions, rather absurd they were. The sugar tongs were too wide for one of her hands, and she had to use both in wielding them. The weight of the silver cream ewer, the bread and butter plates, the very cup and saucer, tasked her insufficient strength and dexterity. But she would lift this, hand that, and luckily contrived through it all to break nothing. Candidly speaking, I thought her a little busybody, but her father, blind like other parents, seemed perfectly content to let her wait on him, and even wonderfully soothed by her offices. She is my comfort, he could not help saying to Mrs. Breton. That lady had her own comfort and non-pareil on a much larger scale, and for the moment absent, so she sympathised with his foible. This second comfort came on the stage in the course of the evening. I knew this day had been fixed for his return, and was aware that Mrs. Breton had been expecting him through all its hours. We were seated round the fire after tea when Graham joined our circle. I should rather say broke it up, for of course his arrival made a bustle, and then, as Mr. Graham was fasting, there was refreshment to be provided. He and Mr. Holm met as old acquaintance. Of the little girl, he took no notice for a time. His meal over and numerous questions from his mother answered, he turned from the table to the hearth. Opposite where he had placed himself was seated Mr. Holm, and at his elbow, the child. When I say child, I use an inappropriate and undescriptive term. 
a term suggesting any picture rather than that of the demure little person in a morning frock and a white chemisette that might just have fitted a good-sized doll. Perched now on a high chair beside a stand, whereon was her toy workbox of white varnished wood, and holding in her hands a shred of a handkerchief, which she was professing to hem, and at which she bored perseveringly with a needle, that in her fingers seemed almost a skewer, pricking herself ever and anon, marking the cambric with a track of minute red dots, occasionally starting when the perverse weapon, swerving from her control, inflicted a deeper stab than usual, but still silent, diligent, absorbed, womanly. Graham was at that time a handsome, faithless-looking youth of sixteen. I say faithless-looking, not because he was really of a very perfidious disposition, but because the epithet strikes me as proper to describe the fair, Celtic, not Saxon, character of his good looks, his waved, light auburn hair, his supple symmetry, his smile frequent, and destitute neither of fascination nor of subtlety in no bad sense. A spoiled, whimsical boy he was in those days. Mother, he said, after eyeing the little figure before him in silence for some time, and when the temporary absence of Mr. Holm from the room relieved him from the half-laughing bashfulness, which was all he knew of timidity. Mother, I see a young lady in the present society to whom I have not been introduced. Mr. Holmes' little girl, I suppose you mean, said his mother. Indeed, ma'am, replied her son. I consider your expression of the least ceremonious. Miss Holm, I should certainly have said, in venturing to speak of the gentlewoman to whom I allude. Now, Graham, I will not have that child teased. Don't flatter yourself that I shall suffer you to make her your butt. Miss Holm, pursued Graham, undeterred by his mother's remonstrance, might I have the honour to introduce myself, since no one else seems willing to render you and me that service? Your servant, John Graham Breton. She looked at him. He rose and bowed quite gravely. She deliberately put down thimble, scissors, work, descended with precaution from her perch, and curtsying with unspeakable seriousness, said, How do you do? I have the honour to be in fair health, only in some measure fatigued with a hurried journey. I hope, ma'am, I see you well. Tolerably well, was the ambitious reply of the little woman. And she now essayed to regain her former elevation. But finding this could not be done without some climbing and straining, a sacrifice of decorum not to be thought of, and being utterly disdainful of aid in the presence of a strange young gentleman, she relinquished the high chair for a low stool. Towards that low stool, Graham drew in his chair. I hope, ma'am, the present residence, my mother's house, appears to you a convenient place of abode. Not particularly. I want to go home. A natural and laudable desire, ma'am, but one which, notwithstanding, I shall do my best to oppose. I reckon on being able to get out of you a little of that precious commodity called amusement, which Mamma and Mistress Snow there fail to yield me. I shall have to go with Papa soon. I shall not stay long at your mother's. Yes, yes, 
You will stay with me, I am sure. I have a pony on which you shall ride, and no end of books with pictures to show you. And you are going to live here now? I am. Does that please you? Do you like me? No. Why? I think you strange. My face, ma'am? Your face, and all about you. You have long red hair. Auburn hair, if you please. Mama calls it Auburn or Golden, and so do all her friends. But even with my long red hair, and he waved his mane with a sort of triumph, tawny he himself knew well that it was, and he was proud of the leonine hue. I cannot possibly be stranger than as your ladyship. You call me strange? Certainly. I think I shall go to bed. A little thing like you ought to have been in bed many hours since, but you probably sat up in the expectation of seeing me. No, indeed. You certainly wished to enjoy the pleasure of my society. You knew I was coming home and would wait to have a look at me. I sat up for Papa and not for you. Very good, Miss Holm. I'm going to be a favourite, preferred before Papa soon, I dare say. She wished Mrs. Breton and myself good night. She seemed hesitating whether Graham's desserts entitled him to the same attention. When he caught her up with one hand, and with that one hand held her poised aloft above his head, she saw herself thus lifted up on high in the glass over the fireplace. The suddenness, the freedom, the disrespect of the action were too much. For shame, Mr. Graham, was her indignant cry, put me down. And when again on her feet, I wonder what you would think of me if I were to treat you in that way, lifting you with my hand, raising that mighty member. As Warren lifts the little cat, so saying, she departed. Good night.